a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 131 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite social media outlet and share the podcast with your friends on whatever platform you choose. This is going to be very brief. I'm recording this on my phone because I am away from all of my recording equipment because we had to leave early to beat a blizzard here in Minnesota to get to my in-laws and uh, have uh, some company for Christmas. Uh, with everything we've been through, we decided we needed to be around some family, and we made the trip, but we had to leave a day early, so I'm recording this on an app on my phone. Quick update, the pause on Minnesota sports continues. They're allowed to start practicing on January 4th, so the hope is that games will begin in the middle of January, somewhere between the 14th and 18th, and I just had a kind of unusual but cool gig working for a, a brand new broadcast network, the National Sports Network. And I was the on-site producer for the Gonzaga versus Iowa number one versus number three uh, game in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the Pentagon with no fans. My job was to run the effects feed and there was very little to do uh, with the effects feed because there was no fans. Um, it was not difficult work. It was good to help out a friend of mine who is does games for that network. And you know, it was just fun to do something in the broadcast field since there has been so little of it lately. Again, I'm going to keep this real short. I just want to wish happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, uh, whatever you celebrate. I hope you have as good a time as you possibly can. Uh, doing so during this crazy year. Uh, this will be the last podcast for this year, and it is with Neil Price. He is the voice of Mississippi State uh, football and basketball, and this was obviously my first normal interview for this show back after the five guest hosts have filled in over the last five episodes. So again, thanks to all of them, uh, but I'm glad to have things back up and normal again. And without further ado, Neil Price. What I like to ask everyone, it just seems to be a good icebreaker to start off with, and it's out there what your answer is, so I know it already, but what was the moment that you kind of fell in love with broadcasting as a craft and a career path? I don't remember the exact date, but I was 11 years old. And my dad and I were on a truck ride from my hometown of Morristown to uh, Newport, which was next county over on Highway 25E. It was a Saturday, and uh, Tennessee was playing football. And I heard John Ward 
and Bill Anderson, who I'd heard before as a young man, because growing up in that part of the world, that's what you did on Saturdays was you listened to Tennessee play football. But that was the first time that it resonated with me that broadcasting, particularly football and basketball broadcasting is something that I would, I would like to do. And I was playing football at that point in middle school. Um, I was big, but I was just there to take up space. I was never going to be any more than that, I think, for any team. And it just felt like this was a way for me to stay involved in sports. All of my friends were above average athletes, and I enjoyed spending time with them. Uh, this was something that could open a door maybe and let me travel with the team uh, continue to do some things where I could be around them and, and sharing those experiences. And it did as I got into high school and later into junior college. But I just thought John Ward was the coolest guy. Um, you know, he, he was very eloquent in how he spoke. He could convey excitement, build drama. He did all the things, checked all the boxes that you want in a broadcaster. And I thought, how cool would it be to have a job where you can travel with a team, get in the games for free and get to see great athletes week in and week out in some of the greatest venues in sports uh, in the Southeastern conference. So I started chasing his example and here we are, you know, from, from that point now uh, about 30 years later, and, uh, and, and it's worked out and, and I'm so glad that it has and glad that I got to meet John along the way a handful of times and, and learn from the guy who followed him, Bob Kessling among others and, uh, kind of a dream come true in that way, I guess. I'm sure it doesn't bother you now, nor should it. And it would not bother me in the same, uh, same situation, but what would that kid who was driving in the truck listening to John Ward tell you if you told him that you were going to be the voice of a rival SEC team? Well, I don't think that I don't think that that eleven year old would have known that this was ever going to work out. You know, I, I've been asked a similar question before, and I just think at that age, you're not thinking about what you're going to be doing <laughs> in 20 years. You're thinking about, will mom and dad drive me to the movie theater to meet my buddies on Friday night? Or will they take me to the mall to meet my friends so we can go walk around? You know, will they take me to the basketball game on, on Thursday? You know, I mean, that, that's kind of where your mind is. I think at that point, um, I, I always wanted to be in the SEC. Uh, it's what I grew up with. It's what I knew. And, you know, I've been fortunate now between two stops to, to have been in this league for 15 years. And, and that's a little bit surreal within itself. But, you know, I don't know that, that that 11 year old boy could deliver any kind of message to the person you're talking to today, just because I don't think his head was in that space at that point. I just know as uh, where I was as an 11 year old boy uh, growing up in Nebraska, if you said you're going to be the, the broadcaster for Oklahoma someday, I'd be like, no, never. <laughs> I would not yeah. say that now as a uh, as an adult, but it's uh, fun to look back. No question. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, again, it's just great to be doing it. You know, I mean, I, I look back on all the stops I've been able to make along the way and to, to 
consider now what I'm doing and go back and look at all those things. Uh, again, they all served a purpose. Uh, I learned something. I learned a lot of things at every stop along the way. And, and the journey has been great. I don't know that I could go back over anything that's happened from the time that I started as a public address announcer in middle school all the way to now that I would change. I can't think of one thing because uh, it's all had some kind of valuable lesson. Uh, it's all been about growing the network. It's all been about learning the craft. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm who I am today because of something that happened at every one of those places. So I don't think I change any of it. I was able to read that you, in high school, started as a public address announcer and eventually moved on to calling games and working for your local radio station in Morristown or a town in that area. I don't remember exactly if it was actually in the town or not, but looking back on that and seeing so many of the paths that I've seen from different broadcasters uh, doing this podcast – how important was getting those early reps, even if they weren't very good or you didn't know what they meant? How important were they in your development? Everything. Uh, you know, I mean, I think I have a degree in, in mass communication, okay? And, and I'm proud of that degree. But the reality is, if you're going to be a broadcaster, the greatest teacher is experience. And I was fortunate to grow up in a town that there were a lot of people who were supportive of opportunity. So I did public address announcing in high school. I started doing it in middle school shortly after uh, I had made the decision that this was what I wanted to do for a career. And it was as simple in the seventh grade as introducing the starting lineups for two middle school basketball games every night that they played. And then the following year, it was introducing the starters and every time someone scored a basket, reporting who scored the basket. Um, when I, I did that, uh, someone in middle school, either our principal, Glenn Knipe, or the coaches, Bobby Golden, Don Fickle, uh, other teachers, they got the attention of the high school principal, uh, a guy named Jerry T. Williams, who when they came to help us with our orientation as eighth graders and to get us signed up for freshman year classes, said, I hear that you do some announcing. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, we'd like for you to do some of that when you get to, to high school. And I thought, this is great. And um, I started out doing uh, football. Uh, I did freshman games on Tuesday nights. I did two middle school games. Excuse me. I did freshman games on Thursday nights. There were two middle school games on Tuesday nights in the stadium, so I went and did those, and the varsity games on Friday. And then basketball, and we had uh, a good wrestling team, so I'd do public address at the at the wrestling matches, um, soccer games, baseball, um, volleyball, anything they'd let me do, uh, I'd do it. And uh, it was great. And through that, I got to know the teachers who were also the coaches who had lived in town a lot longer than I had been alive. And they knew other people like the general manager at WCRK and got me connected 
for a part-time opportunity there at 15 years old. And my parents drove me to work for about the first six months that I had a job. Uh, but it, it's, it's part of it is because I was comfortable speaking on air. I was able to get the job because I had been public address announcer to middle school and the high school. Uh, but again, there's that networking component there, even at that stage of life at 15 years old, because I didn't know Mark Ashford, the general manager, but the baseball coach and the athletic director at the high school did. And he was willing to speak on my behalf. So that part of it played a role very early. And then you get into a radio station and now all of a sudden it's a different kind of broadcasting, but there are opportunities to go and help out with the high school games when the team's on the road. And it was as simple as setting up the equipment, uh, helping carry things in and out of the stadium. And they might let me read stats at halftime and post game. And I thought that was just the greatest thing to be able to get those opportunities. And I started out on radio like a lot of people start out, I think, or at least in this part of the world, the way a lot of people start out. Uh, I worked on Sunday mornings. Uh, pastors would come in. They'd do their shows. I'd help them get in and out of their broadcast. I'd read the news. And then I'd fill in in you know, morning and afternoon drive when the regular guys took their vacation and, you know, played music and did some sports and, you know, read the daily features like the birth announcements and the death announcements and, you know, all the things you do in small market radio. And it's a wonderful way to learn. It is. It's a wonderful way to learn. Uh, it's the way radio, I think, should be done because it is full service and in the interest of those who listen. And, uh, you know, from there, it, it kind of turned into you, you've got a name. People know you because you're on the radio and it opens a lot more doors. So uh, another valuable step along the way. I've never asked anybody this, and this is going to be episode 131 by the time it's released. I just kind of thought about it at the beginning of your answer, and I was talking about this with another friend off the air. Have you ever actually had to prove that you had the college degree that you did in the radio business? No, I've never had to prove it. Now, if you don't put it on the resume, somebody might dismiss you immediately. Uh, you know, I was asked about the value of a degree in mass communication uh, on a podcast I did earlier, Logan. And like I told you, I have a mass communication degree from Middle Tennessee State University. I'm incredibly proud of that. I learned from wonderful people, some that have worked in market one in this country and Everything I learned from them had its place, and it was valuable. I have learned more from being on the air, being in the field, and just continuously working through broadcasting games, football, basketball, baseball, soccer, whatever the sport may be. The constant repetition has taught me more than anything I learned in the four walls of a classroom. That's no disrespect to anyone that I had as an instructor when, when I was going to class, because again, there are things that they taught me that I still use, but there's no substitute for experience doing it. I believe anybody can do what we do. I really do. I think the separator is the amount of times and the amount of work that they're, they're willing to put in the repetition. That to me, is what separates uh, being able to do this from not being able to do it. 
Well, I just had to show my degree for the very, very first time. And I don't think, I think I'm, I'm 35 and I've had several different radio jobs. And if I had wanted to, I probably could have put that I went to Harvard for all they cared <laughs> as uh, on my resume. I would never actually do that, but I just applied for a substitute teaching license to help make the ends meet during the pandemic. And that was the first time I had to get a transcript and prove that I actually went to school. So coming full circle on what you say, that experience and the ability to do it is so much more important than a traditional education, I think. So there's nothing traditional about what we do, if you think about it. I mean, our, our jobs are different because the hours are incredibly strange, um, you know, and I just don't think, quote, normal folks think about showing up and putting a headset on and becoming as invested in a sports event as we we get for the course of three or four hours at a time. So, you know, it's it's not traditional work in, in a sense. Uh, that said, it's incredibly fun, and I can't think of any other job that I would rather do, um, you know, than, than what I'm doing right now. So it all comes back to the experience piece of it. Uh, you know, I've got a college degree from Middle Tennessee State University, mass communications. I'm incredibly proud of that degree. I'm incredibly proud of where I went to school. And I did learn a lot in two and a half years of, of finishing up the program there. But what I would tell you is more than anything I learned inside the four walls of a classroom, I learned more about the business from the repetition that I got on air while I was in school at middle, helping out broadcasting the football games, women's basketball games, the baseball games, doing pre and post game shows and having to navigate through the challenges that live radio can present. And, you know, there's no textbook. There's no page in a textbook for some of the things that, that we encountered. And now I think, you know, being almost 20 years removed from that, I just think now I'm not totally unflappable, but boy, it takes a lot to rattle me when I get behind a microphone or when we go into the field or we're in a strange arena or a strange stadium that we've not seen before because I had to deal with that stuff when, when I was getting started. So you just find a way to figure it out and, and move on. You mentioned this is the only job you would ever want to do. I'm going to guess at maybe you don't have to anymore now that you've reached the SEC level, but at a certain point you probably had to do other odd jobs or weird jobs. What are some of the maybe more unusual ones that you've had to uh, supplement uh, the play-by-play life? Logan, this is going to be outstanding. This is going to be an astounding answer to a lot of people. I'm one of the very, very fortunate few that I've not had any other job that wasn't working at a radio station or working in sports at some level. I don't know how I've been able to get around it. I applied for a job when I was in high school to bag groceries and couldn't get hired. If you could believe that, <laughs> um, that's, I mean, that, that's it. I, I'm one of the very few people that has just been fortunate in that respect that I never had to do it. Now, what I did do when I came to Mississippi state, um, because they had a need and asked me to help, 
I taught one semester as an adjunct instructor, broadcast performance and television practicum. Uh, and there's probably a reason I only taught one semester as an adjunct professor. I don't know that I was great at it, uh, or instructor, I should say, but that was fun. In some ways, it felt like an opportunity to give back and try to help some other people build a foundation, just like a lot of people helped me when I was younger. But it's a different world. Um, you know, teaching people to read the news and teaching people to be a sports broadcaster, two very different things. You know, there, there's a value in teaching good writing. There's a value in teaching the way that you want to look when you present on camera or the way that you want to use good breathing and posture, you know, when you're presenting on radio, but it's not the same as saying, here's the week long process leading up to a football game and the things you need to check off at this stage of the week to make sure that you're on pace for Saturday, or here are the things with two basketball games coming up this week that you need to check off daily to make sure that you're on pace and you're prepared and you know not just about your team, but you know about the two teams that your team is going to play over the course of that week. That was eye-opening in a lot of ways, but I, I have been one of the very fortunate few that I didn't have to have a second job. Um, I, I was on scholarship in college and was able to work in athletics as part of my scholarship. So I, I, I've never had to do what, what, what everybody else has done. I've never had to balance it quite like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I'd be where I am today if I, if I did have to do that, to be honest with you. You went the junior college route, and we talk about it all the time on this show, that every path is different. There's no one way to do things. And I don't think I've had very many people on here who went to junior college uh, before going to a traditional college and – I was wondering what went into that, and then tell the story of how you were either the beneficiary of or the person who was able to negotiate getting uh, your junior college, Walter State, on the radio for the first time in 20 years. Okay, so again, networking is important. Uh, and sometimes that connection you make in networking is as simple as making a friend when you're in school. I was in middle school. And one of the cheerleaders uh, at the middle school was a young lady named Kelly Campbell. Kelly Campbell's father was Dr. Jack Campbell, who was the president of Walter State Community College. So Dr. Campbell and Mrs. Campbell would come to all of the games to see Kelly cheer. And while they were there indirectly, they heard me announcing, you know, the, the starters and reporting the made baskets and all that. And I remember being in eighth grade, getting ready to, to move to high school. And last middle school game we had that year, Dr. Campbell came over and introduced himself. And he said, if you would like to go to college, I'll have a scholarship waiting for you when you get out of high school. Again, I'm in the eighth grade. Uh, I mean, I'm 13. I, I'm not thinking about college. I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat when the game's over. You know, I mean, so – Sure enough, I get to last day senior year of high school and I get a call in the guidance office and it's Dr. Campbell. Still got that scholarship if you want it. Well, sure. I mean, I, 
the places I wanted to go to school that were four-year schools, I had big dreams but had bad grades, okay? I mean, below average to get into any place that would have been, quote-unquote, a, a broadcasting or journalism superpower. I, I wasn't going to go to Syracuse. I wasn't going to go to Northwestern, Florida. Um, I wanted to go to North Carolina in the worst way. I thought that North Carolina was one of the prettiest campuses I'd ever been to. thought it was beautiful. Had a friend who did go there who got one score within within one point of perfect on the ACT and had an SAT that was off the charts, and they told him they'd let him in, but he'd get no help financially. They reserved all that or the bulk of it from people that were in state, and good for them for doing that. Um, so that dream wasn't going to happen. So I probably, from a mental standpoint, hadn't matured to the point that I was ready to go away from home to go to college. So two more years of school in my hometown where I could sleep in my own bed, go to school for free. Oh, and by the way, have more opportunity to grow as a broadcaster. Perfect. I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do. I don't know that the radio was on the table immediately. I think that came a little bit later once I got to school. But I remember there being a meeting one day, and it was Dr. Campbell, uh, a vice president named Victor Duggins, who was in charge of the foundation and college advancement, and a guy named Rob Pratt, who is a dear friend and wound up being a mentor to me while I was there because he had gone to school there had gone on to East Tennessee State to finish his degree and later uh, went to work at the CBS affiliate in in the Tri-Cities in East Tennessee and, and then later in Knoxville and other places. So we talked about putting the games on the radio. Well, we had the connection with WCRK because I had worked there. And, of course, all those folks at, at the community college – they were tied in with the general manager and, and the staff there through, you know, different uh, civic clubs in town. And just, you know, Morristown's not a very big town, small town, so everybody kind of knows everybody. They worked out an agreement to get the games on the air there. We started that first year doing just the conference games, uh, men's and women's basketball, which still was about, I'd say, 14 nights out of out of the season where I got to do two games a night. And that first year, a guy named Mike Campbell, who was an academic advisor there, uh, did the games with me, the women's games. And then during the men's games, the women's basketball coach, a guy named Dave Craigle, would walk up from the floor and would do the men's games with me because Dave was a player at Oklahoma State and, you know, had great knowledge of the game, was a fantastic coach, won thousand games, you know, as, as a coach in junior college. Uh, so I had a lot of good help. Uh, in the second year, Rob wound up doing the games with me, uh, men's and women's games, and we added a station in Newport, Tennessee, the next county over, and we added one in Tazewell, Tennessee, which was two counties over on the Kentucky border because those were towns that were in the college's service area, and we found stations that were willing to pick it up and carry it. And the way we did this, I mean, this was not – a big time production. There were no satellites there, nothing like that. We, we had a three way telephone call that initiated from where we were sitting 
on uh, the concourse of, of the gym in Morristown. We would dial WCRK. Then we would conference in Newport and Tazewell. And we had basically a big three-way phone call. Um, and, and we just broadcast the games and we stayed on the air for no time. You did two basketball games. You did a little show in between maybe 15 minute pregame, a short post game after the men's game. We were on the air about five hours a night. And by the time I left Walter state, when I graduated to go finish my degree at middle Tennessee, I had a lot of on air experience broadcasting basketball and I was comfortable doing it. And, that gave me a leg up on so many other opportunities when I went to middle that I would have probably never had a chance to do had it not been for the kindness and the generosity of a lot of people at Walter State Community College and a lot of people in, in Morristown, Tennessee, who helped make all that happen. So the moral of the story, when you're in middle school, be friends with the cheerleaders. Well, that might be the moral of the story for anybody. I mean, it worked out well for me, you know, from a broadcast standpoint. It never worked out well for me in any other way. I'll put it that way. But from a standpoint of advancing my career, yeah, that one connection uh, was very valuable. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, an, it's an angle I haven't talked about a lot. I'll put it that way. But still, one of the most important connections. And I'll tell this story, too, and it won't embarrass Kelly. Not that I don't know that Kelly will ever hear this, but probably not. <laughs> no, but Kelly also was notorious to unplug the PA system because I was just too loud. So again, wasn't always, hey, dad, you should help this guy because he's good. It's just, you know, we, there, there was that angle to it too. She was, she was always good to unplug the speakers at least once or twice in a game too. So I say that, that jokingly about the cheerleader, but. One of the things that that really points out is we talk about networking and building relationships. So often it's not a relationship with somebody in the industry, but just somebody who knows somebody emphasizes the importance of being a good person and being nice to everyone. Well, yeah, and, and I think that should be the goal for all of us. Now, the reality is me included, me probably at the front of the line, is that I fall well short of that. Uh, and, you know, that's something we should all strive to do better every day. And goodness knows what we could accomplish as a group, what we could accomplish as a country if we would do that. Uh, but back down that same road again, Bob Kessling is a guy who has been probably the, the predominant influence across my entire career. I would have probably never met Bob Kessling had it not been for Jack Campbell because Bob Kessling had a broadcasting camp in the summer of 2000 at the University of Tennessee, and I saw a brochure for it, but the reality was I couldn't afford to go to it. I, I just couldn't. I couldn't swing that at 20 years old. And I took it to Dr. Campbell, and I said, you know, here's an opportunity for me to get better professionally to learn from some of the best broadcasters, certainly in the southeastern United States, probably in the country at that point. And if I could do this, I think it would make our broadcast better. And Dr. Campbell, God bless him, wrote a check and said, we're going to send you. We want you to do this. If for some reason you get hired by somebody while you were there, though, I wasn't going to get hired by anybody while I was there. But if, if you get hired while you're there, you have to pay us back. Deal. I'm in. 
And I went and spent a week at that broadcasting camp in 2000. And I got to meet Bob Kessling, who has become a lifelong friend. I got to work with Tim Brando, Bob Rathbun, who's been with the Hawks for a long time and the Detroit Tigers for a little bit. Um, Larry Conley, who had a long run on Jefferson Pilot games, uh, doing SEC basketball and also on Fox, uh, you know, all kinds of guys, uh, and, and got to meet John Ward for the first time, who was my hero in the broadcasting business. So yeah, that Walter State Community College and the people there have a special place in my heart and always will because they opened so many doors that may have never been opened otherwise. I want to skip ahead a little bit. You, again, were at Middle Tennessee State, graduated there. I couldn't get the timeline exact to see if you just did games as a student or if you did it professionally for a couple years before. Just as a student. Just as a student. So right right after graduation, you became the women's basketball and baseball voice at the University of Kentucky. And that was uh, seemingly your first big break within the industry. Uh, How did that occur? And just take us through the process of landing that position. Well, you have to go back to that broadcasting camp. Okay, so that to me, that's the first big break because of the people I was able to meet there and the connections that I was able to make. And then I did the games at middle uh, as a student, women's basketball and baseball for three seasons, uh, did sideline reports for football pre and post games. So again, there's the reps piece of it coming in. I've got plenty of opportunity. And then in 2005, this job at Kentucky pops up. They need a baseball announcer. And that's all it's going to be on the front end is just to go and do baseball. Well, yeah, I'd like to do that. It's an SEC job. It's not far away from my folks. That was important to me. I'd be three and a half hours away. Um, Yeah, let's make a run at it. And I remember the interview took place uh, probably late January of 2005. I drove up one day from Murfreesboro to Lexington, sat in a room with Steve Angelusi, who was the general manager of the property at that time for host communications, uh, Mike Dodson, and a guy named Rick Thompson, who uh, was the marketing um was marketing rep at, at, at UK for UK athletics. And uh, I don't know how I got the job because the first question I was asked is who were your influences? And of course I went on and on about how great John Ward was. I thought John Ward was just the master of, of everything related to college sports broadcasting. And Mike Dodson's quiet guy by nature. And, and Mike looks across it and he says, yeah, John's good. Our guy was better. Really? Who was your guy? Kaywood Ledford. Oh, I never heard of him, you know, and here, here's the 22 year old kid, you know, or, or excuse me, 24 year old kid who's put his foot in his mouth, arguably for the biggest opportunity of his career. And you're thinking there's no way you're going to get out of this. Somehow I got the job and I found out later I got the job because Bob Kessling was willing to go to bat for me and gave me a reference. Got him Glenn Thaxton, who is the, uh, assistant or associate GM with the Vol Network in Knoxville, he gave me uh, a reference. And because Mike Dodson trusted their um, trusted their judgment because their reputation was good, they gave me a chance based on just a little bit of tape when I'm sure they could have hired somebody from Lexington or Louisville in a bigger market who would have been just as good, if not better. But 
it all goes back to that. Again, networking and reps. And once I got in the door there, we were off and running. And I think I took that job for the grand sum of like twenty or $21,000 in 2005. And I thought I was John Rockefeller. I mean, it was, it was, it was great. Good time of life. Really good time of life. <laughs> you stayed there for 12 years. And I'm sure when you took that job, you're thinking three to five, I'm going to get another major college uh, football, men's basketball position. And, you know, achieve the dreams that you've set out for when when you were at that age. And you had to instead stay there for 12 years. You were turned down uh, by you know, North Dakota State, I think was one of them, and Georgia Southern and Montana, and some of the, the places that you thought you were more than qualified to be there. How difficult was it to keep the the confidence that, not necessarily in your ability, but that something would finally break right for you uh, during that decade as women's basketball broadcaster, which is a heck of a job in its own right. But at the same time, at that age and that position, you're probably looking for more. Well, I think you, you said it. Because the job at Kentucky was so good, even though I wanted to do big-time college football, and I wanted to do men's basketball, um, I, I wasn't devastated uh, or I didn't feel like that I had reached the end of the road by any stretch when I got turned down for those jobs. And, and here's the thing you learn as, as you get older. And when you're young and you're told this, it, it doesn't sit well with you. And, and with me, it, it just because I didn't get it. And then the light came on later, and now I'm at a stage of life where I totally understand what fit is about. Well, you're not the right fit. And what do you mean I'm not the right fit? I've been doing this for this long. I think I'm good at it. You know, you've got your chest pumped out. You're, you're just, you know, you're the, you're the baddest guy in the room. You know, why, why, what do you mean I don't fit? That's impossible, right? No, it's very possible. North Dakota State is a great example. I was excited about going to Fargo. Uh, to me, that was like the Alabama of, of FCS football. And, you know, the Fargo Dome was great. I remember the interview was first class, um, you know, and Jeremy Jorgensen, who was uh, assistant AD there, I guess Jeremy's still there. Um, Jeremy calls me and he says, Neil, it's not going to happen. And he said, here's why. There's nothing wrong with your resume. There's nothing wrong with the way that you call the game. But given the circumstances of why the job's open, the guy who'd done the games there for many years had, had died with cancer, unfortunately. They had to get it right. And part of getting it right was not bringing a Southerner to Fargo, North Dakota, who didn't talk like an upper Midwesterner. And, and that's, I get it. I wouldn't have gotten it probably 10 years ago, but I got it that day. And they wound up hiring a guy named Jeff Colhane, who is a friend. Jeff was at West Virginia. Jeff is from South Dakota. And Jeff fits the bill, and he's done a fantastic job for him. So they won, and in in my in my case, I won too because I got to stay at Kentucky for another year. I got a year better. I met more people. I was able to really sit down and break down more tape. And then when Mississippi State came along, it it was the perfect fit because it was in the league I wanted to work in. It was doing football, men's basketball in one of the biggest leagues in the country. 
I, because I put it off for one more year, it worked out. You know, sometimes it's it's that. I mean, and it's maddening to think about, but sometimes it's just that simple. The timing's just not right or the fit's just not right. And if you stay the course and you keep working, you get rewarded. I think the good Lord rewards people who work hard, do their best, and 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 do it the right way. And and I hope I've done all those things. After that happened, was there ever any thought of trying to adjust the way that you speak to sound more non-regional for the pursuit? Or did you just kind of decide, you know, if that's going to be the way it is, I'm just going to apply for jobs in the South? No, I never thought about it. Now, here's what I'll tell you. Um, There's a switch. You know, when, when I'm on the air, I sound one way. And when I'm not on the air and I'm just talking to friends or I'm at home with my wife or even sometimes when I'm in the office, the grammar is not perfect. Um, the twang from the East Tennessee Valley comes back. And I think that's important. Um, Robin Williams played Popeye in the early 80s in a movie and he sang a song, I am what I am and that's all that I am. Well, that's it. I am what I am. You know, I, I was born in East Tennessee. I'm proud to be from East Tennessee. Um, I'm proud that I talk the way that I do. Uh, it's an important part of my personality and my makeup. Uh, I think that if I talked that way on the air, people wouldn't take me seriously. Just like as you and I are talking right now in, in, with the broadcast voice on because we're in a professional setting. I think if I talked like this all the time, if I walked in the office every day, hi, how are you doing? I think they'd laugh me out of the building because it's just not the way it's supposed to be. So when you're at work, it's, how you doing? You okay? Good to see you. You know, it's just, you you relax, but you can't relax during the game. Um, You know, you want to be conversational, but you want to be professional at the same time. And that's the balance I'm always trying to find. And when, when the mic's off, that, that guy goes away for a little while and he comes back when it's time to do the game again. You mentioned that eventually you did get obviously hired at Mississippi State. We said that at the very beginning. Uh, what was the sequence of events that eventually led you to that break uh, from Kentucky? Okay, here are the two words again, Logan, networking and repetition, okay? Um, when I first started at Kentucky, the first person I met outside of the interview, uh, before the first game I ever did, it was a baseball game. Baseball coach at Kentucky was a guy named John Cohen. In 2017, when I applied for the job at Mississippi State, the athletic director at Mississippi State was a former baseball coach at State and at Kentucky named John Cohen. So, I made that connection, and I didn't know in 2005 that John had any ambition on being an administrator, but we we got along famously. Uh, we enjoyed each other's company. We had a great time uh, on the road uh, outside of the games. We'd sit and have coffee, talk, eat breakfast together, uh, you know, on those road trips and kind of got to know one another beyond just a transactional working relationship. And Jim Ellis, who had been doing the games here uh, for the six years following the retirement of Jack Crystal, who did the games for more than a half century at Mississippi State, um, Jim decides he's going to he's going to semi-retire 
and he just wants to do baseball, which he's been doing for 42 years now. And I saw the news on social media and I sent John a text and I said, Hey, John, you know, I don't know what the appropriate time is, but when that time comes, I'd like to talk to you about the job. And John sends back, here's the process. Here's what we're thinking. Here's where you need to send everything. Here's where you need to send your application. And, you know, we'll be in touch once we get further down the road. Further down the road is about three months, okay? It's not something that happens overnight. And I think they probably took it from however many applicants they had. I'm sure they had well over a 100 for a job like this, maybe more. Um I think they got it down to four that they interviewed. Uh, I don't know who the other three were. Um, I had a phone interview, never came here to see anyone face-to-face. Um, and about a week later, they offered me the job. We slept on it overnight, didn't take it immediately. Um, I said, I'm 95% sure, but I want to sleep on it. And my wife was from Kentucky. Uh, her family was there. We were going to move eight hours away from my folks, which is further than I'd ever lived away from them in my life. My wife was going to move about 10 hours away from hers. And um, we thought about it and both of us kind of came to the decision. Oh, and here's the other piece of it. Now, my wife had a great job making more money than I did. Okay. So that's an important piece of this when you're married, that you're taking into account everyone's happiness and the financial stability of your family. And we slept on it and got up the next morning. And she said, I think you got to do it. She said, I think, I think you got to do it. And, uh, when I had her blessing, I, I called John back and I said, yeah, we're coming. And, uh, rest is history. I got the job on the 17th of June of 2017. I think I was here right around the first day of August for the start of fall football camp and been here ever since. And, uh, it's exactly what I hoped it would be. Uh, it's a lot of fun to go and, and sit in these big SEC stadiums and do SEC football. It's an event. Um, I still love doing basketball. I've always enjoyed doing basketball. And uh, the people I've been able to meet here and, and, and some of the players I've been able to cover that have gone on to play in the NFL and you know, few that are in the NBA now, it's, it's a pretty neat deal. You touched on probably one of the most important factors, uh, especially once you get to a certain age, is having a supportive spouse or a supportive family. How long was that talk about deciding to move? Was it um, obviously you have a supportive spouse or you wouldn't have done it, but how long and how do you balance uh, all the time and the weird hours uh, with keeping a successful marriage? Well, I think you, you have to, you have to marry the right person. That's, that's the biggest key in it. My wife worked in athletics, uh, was an athlete in high school, worked as a manager for the basketball program, the women's basketball program at Kentucky when she was going to school, uh, and then worked in the women's basketball office as, uh, as an administrative assistant help with operations, logistics, all those things. So she knew the lifestyle and she's incredibly independent on top of that. So she's not the kind of person who likes for me to be around every waking moment of every day. 
the reality is I probably miss her when I'm away a lot more than she misses me. And she would laugh with me saying that. That's just that's that's our relationship. But that conversation wasn't terribly long. Uh, it was not. I don't remember it being a hard sell. I'll put it that way. Um, Fargo, North Dakota was a hard sell because my wife doesn't like cold weather. And as the nice lady who was part of the interview that was the general manager of the radio station pointed out, it doesn't snow in inches here. It snows in feet. And my wife was adverse to that right away. Um, she's not a cold weather person. So when this job opened, we had both been to Starkville more times than we could count. Uh, coming here with Kentucky, we knew what to expect. We had friends here that we had made through the years, uh, one of which was uh, the women's basketball coach at Kentucky at that time. His daughter went to school at Mississippi State. Matthew was a state grad, so he could tell you all about it and was really supportive uh, during that process. And we just didn't feel like we were coming to a place where we were going to be total strangers. And on the front end of this thing, people could not have been kinder to us when, when we got here, helping us get located, helping us uh, get acclimated to the things that maybe we didn't know or places we hadn't been when we were coming in here 24 hours at a time. And, uh, you know, that that was great. But I, I don't recall it being a long conversation at all. It's just, you know, what do you think? Well, I think this is the, this is a good fit. I think it will. It's what you want to do. I think it checks all the boxes. Um, let's just sleep on it and see if there's anything that comes up overnight that we haven't thought about. And we woke up the next day and I think it was eight Oh five. And I mean, we had clarity on it first thing in the morning and we're off and running. One of the things I like about doing a broadcast and, and I've never done anything at the level of an sec game. So I'm assuming that this is amplified many times, but there's, a feeling that when you get there early, no one else is in that empty stadium and you can kind of feel the energy slowly build as you approach kickoff, as the crowd filters in, people come into the press box, etc. I want to know what was going through your mind at that moment uh, when the stadium was empty for your first Mississippi State game. I don't know that I really paid attention to it, Logan, to be honest with you, because the thing I'm thinking about on that day in particular is, am I prepared? Um, have I done enough? Do I know enough about Charleston Southern? Am I going to be able to identify all of our players correctly? Because it's the first time that people at Mississippi State have ever heard me, and you only get one chance to make a first impression. Those are the things I remember thinking about going into that first game on Labor Day weekend of 2017. And again, you know, I was I was stepping into a role here. There was a long shadow. Uh, I told you earlier, Jack Crystal did the games for 58 years at Mississippi State. And even though I never met Jack, he passed before I got to Starkville. A guy who worked with him for the better part of 30 of those years and did the games for the six years prior to me coming here was Jim Ellis. So Jim cast a big shadow. And what you want to do more than anything is not only make a great first impression, but you want to make sure that in some way you do a job that will honor those two guys because they set a pretty high standard here. So 
I think more about those things. Now, that said, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I'm a little bit like Sinatra and that I like to work a big room. Okay. So when there are 61,000 people in Davis Wade Stadium and they're all ringing those cowbells and you've got two SEC teams on the field, there's nothing like that. Nothing. Um, same thing in basketball. I mean, I- I'd seen it happen. At, at Rupp Arena when I was in Lexington, uh, I got to watch that from afar. I did a handful of UK men's basketball games while I was there filling in during the football basketball overlap. I knew what that environment was like. Um, when you get State and Ole Miss together in any sport, it's always a great atmosphere. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah, I take those things in, but I may be the exact opposite of some people in that the thing I look forward to other than the game itself on game day, is going to see friends, going to see people that I don't get to see very often, friends I've made in the SEC through the years. And and I knew some of these guys doing football and basketball early in my career because a lot of them do baseball in the SEC too. And when I was doing baseball at Kentucky, I got to meet a lot of these guys. And you know, I enjoy that more than anything, going sitting down, having a cup of coffee uh, in the press box or, or maybe sharing pregame meal with some of these guys and swapping stories and hearing what they've got to say. And we'll talk a little bit about the game that's going to happen that day. But more often than not, it's just how have you been? It's good to see you. You know, if they've got families, how are your kids? You know, it's it's stuff like that. I enjoy that a lot more. And the only reason I'm able to is because of the process of preparation that leads up to it. If I'm prepared, the thing I want to do about 30 minutes before or an hour before the game is I just want to kind of relax and breathe. And I'm confident that I can fall back on my preparation and I'm going to be fine when the game starts and I can go enjoy those things. Whereas if I wasn't prepared, if I wasn't ready, I'd have to blow all of that off and sit in there and cram right up until the moment that, that the ball gets kicked off. So that's, that's how I approach game days. That's what I love about game day. And, you know, it's, it's more about seeing people in the relationships and we all get to enjoy the game together instead of worrying about what's going to happen in the game right up to the point that it starts. I'm sure you were doing some football as a freelance broadcaster most of the time you were there, whether that just be doing the pregame stuff for the University of Kentucky or picking up some high school games on the side. But you went into Mississippi State not having a whole lot of at least obvious football experience doing play-by-play. How much of an impact... And how did you sell it to the AD and to the Learfield IMG people, uh, whoever it was at that time, I don't remember, that you could do football? Well, I'd done a grand total of one college game before I got to Mississippi State. And that was Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky uh, filling in on the WKU network. How's that? You know, I'm a middle grad. And the one college football game I did, I did for the team's biggest rival on their network because they <laughs> needed help, and I was living in Kentucky. Uh, what sense does that make, right? Um, I'd done a lot of high school football, and uh, I, I was able to do that because Mike Dodson, a name that we brought up already, uh, put me in touch with a guy named Hayes McMakin in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. Hayes owned four stations uh, in, in eastern Kentucky, and he had a bunch of high school games that he needed to cover and one of his teams didn't have an announcer. So I wound up going to Winchester, Kentucky, uh, 30 minutes from Lexington 
And for seven years, I, I did George Rogers Clark football, and it was wonderful, great experience. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, I, I did the pregame and postgame hosting on, on the football games for Kentucky, and I was a producer on those football games uh, for the last three years that, that I was in Lexington. And that's a great job. I'd recommend anybody who wants to be a good announcer be a producer for a little while because it forces you to think in a much different way. And I think it makes you better on the air because you're just trained to think about when's the right moment to do a certain thing. When's the right moment to inject this feature? When's the right moment to inject this point? If, if a team's offense isn't on the field, but the quarterback's having a great day and you're coming out of a break, you know, if the team defense is going out on the field, it's not a good time to be talking about what your quarterback's done. You know, you learn, it's just details. It's little things like that that I picked up on from that experience. So what I think I sold to everybody here was, Hey, I've done football play by play, even though a lot of it has been in high school, but the nuts and bolts are the same time, score, down, distance. Uh, I can spot the ball on the field. I can do all of the basics, and then I know what it's supposed to sound like because I've been so involved with what we've done at Kentucky for the last three years. Even though I haven't been the guy doing the game, I've been around a real pro in Tom Leach, and I've got to listen to him every Saturday up close, personal. I know how he prepares. I know how it's supposed to sound. And by the way, I'm helping with that because I'm producing and I'm kind of directing traffic up there around the game itself. I, I think that I hope that was valuable. It worked out, so there had to be some value to it. But that that's what I told them. I mean, I, I, again, I go back to the Robin Williams line in Popeye. I am what I am, you know, uh, and and I hope that's good enough. And And luckily, this time it was. I've always had a theory that if you're able to do a high school game well, it's actually easier the higher up the ladder you go just because you are you have stats and you have a sports information director who sends you game notes. And if you can do a good high school game, uh, you can do a good college game. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, high school games are difficult, you know, because you're lucky in a lot of ways if you get a complete roster with everyone's name and number on it. Don't, don't worry about all the other vitals. Just the name and number sometimes can be hard to get. If there's one newspaper article that has been written about the team leading into the game, if you get that, that sometimes can be the only background information that you have. Uh, so yeah, it's difficult. What I would tell anyone who's starting out, and I didn't know this when I started doing high school games, Logan. So I, it's, you know, it, 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 again, you see things from a different perspective as you get deeper into your career. If you're doing a high school game, that roster, that's the most important thing. Anything you get beyond that is gravy, but use the opportunity that you've been given to really work on the fundamentals of play-by-play. And, and that is the most important things, time, score, down, distance. You don't have to have any additional prep to focus on doing those things and doing them well. Focus on that first. Then focus on adding in the details. 
what formation is the offense in? If you know that they have a particular receiver that is the best receiver on their team or a favorite target, where is he lined up at on the field every play? So people can kind of keep track of that player. How many down linemen is the defense working with? How many are they rushing after the quarterback in a passing situation? Slowly start to build out the details. I think high school games are great for that. And if you do those things, you'll have one of the best-sounding high school broadcasts around. And then in turn, somebody listens to that and says, hey, this guy or this young lady is really good, and maybe we should give him a chance to move up the ladder. And that's how it starts. I mean, that sounds so very simple. I know that. But I believe that to be the truth, that it's all about getting the basics right first. And high school is a great place to do it. Then when you get to college, what the challenge becomes is you have so much information. How do you sift through it and pick out what is relevant, what's most important? And what I do is I go through and I read both sets of game notes. I try to read as much as I can online about the two teams that are going to be involved in the game, uh, and I make my own game notes. So I just have a working Word document for each game. I go in and I type things up in bullet points that come out of the game notes from both teams. I, I go through, and if I find an article or two that are compelling, I'll bring stuff out of them. You know, And, and I may not use a quarter of that in the course of a game, but it helps me kind of pare down all that information to a way that it's manageable for me. And I just keep it on a clipboard off to the side. And if we're in a break and I think of something that's happened in a game or if Matt White, who does football with me, or Jay Perry, if they bring up a point while we're in the break, I go, oh, yeah, I got something on that. And I can flip through and find it and pass along an anecdote or whatever the case may be. Uh, that that becomes the challenge as you move up is that, yes, there is more information, but how do you sift through it and use the stuff that's best for the game that you're doing that week? All right. I don't have a whole – I don't want to keep you here a whole lot longer, but I do have a couple uh, just kind of fun things that I want to touch on before I let you go. And the first is uh, you were nominated or inducted into the Morristown East Hall of Fame. Did you have to give a speech, and how long did it take you to write it if you did? Well, I, I said a few words. Uh, I did not give one uh, in a formal setting, uh, but I will tell you it's one of the great honors of, of my life. Um, Morristown East High School, I mean, for anyone who knows me, it played a really significant role in my life. I'd tell you that it, some of the best years of my life were spent walking in the hallways in that place. And that may make me sappy or sentimental or whatever. And that's fine. People can laugh at me all they want to, but it formed me in many ways into who I am today. So I, I what I remember is standing up in front of a group of friends in the cafeteria uh, with the other three inductees and just saying something similar to that. You know, I love this place. Uh, it means the world to me. It means the world to me that it remembers who I am and would honor me. And uh, I wouldn't take anything or trade anything for my time there. I think it was something that simple. The first thing that you find if you Google Neil Price is an archaeologist. And I was just curious <laughs> if you had a bunch of khaki clothes and hats and a whip and you lived a double life rescuing ancient relics as an archaeologist. 
No, I'm not Dr. Jones. No, uh, I am not that. But uh, yeah, there apparently is a very well-published author on Viking archaeology whose name is Neil Price. Uh, so yeah, when you when you type that in, uh, that's what you get. And that's probably good because I would wager to say that Dr. Neil Price, the Viking archaeologist, has contributed much more to the world than Neil Price, <laughs> the broadcaster, has. Have you ever accidentally gotten a social media post or email or something that was supposed to go to the other one? No, never. And I think part of that is, is I, I don't know what, what his Twitter handle would be, but, but I've never had one that's just been my name. I don't think mine's always had some tie to whatever network I've been working for. So I, I don't think it'd be hard for somebody to send it to me that way. I think. Have you tried to follow him on Twitter and see if he'd follow you back? No, uh, not, not a big Viking archeology span guy. What if you continued to climb the ladder and ended up as the voice of the Minnesota Vikings once Paul Allen retires? That there's the hypothetical. Yeah, there is the hypothetical. Here, here's what I would tell you with with regard to social media. I think that I'm closer to getting rid of it than I am to trying to grow it at this stage of life. Uh, so you know, I don't know. The longer we're here. That may be something that unless they just want me to keep it, it, it may get phased out one of these days, and, and that'll be one less Neil Price for him to have to find on there. and uh, it Maybe it'll, it'll create less confusion for everybody. I am totally on board with you with that. I actually took Facebook off of my phone. I didn't delete my account, but I took it off my phone. So now I look at it every couple of days instead of every 10 minutes. But um We'll finish up here. One thing I ask everybody is, what is their broadcast horror story? And I'm going to guess that as someone who did a bunch of high school football in Kentucky and women's basketball traveling, I'm assuming, to some uh, remote places that you have a good one or two of these broadcast horror stories. And when I say that, it's not actually anything horrific, but just all of the equipment dying at once or a really, really odd vantage point or uh, a coach cussing you out from from the bench. I don't know. It could be anything. Uh, but I bet you have a couple good ones. Yeah. Luckily, I've never been cussed by a coach. Uh, I've had good relationships with all of them so far. Thank goodness. Uh, the one that comes to mind, uh, I was doing pregame and postgame uh, at middle for the football games. And buddy of mine named David Reed, who's a producer now uh, for 104.5 The Zone in Nashville, he's, he's built a really good career for himself. Uh, David was working with me. We were classmates uh, in College of Mass Comm, and David was kind of our producer slash engineer. Well, we had a phone line installed in the quad – on campus in a building called Peck Hall. And one Saturday before a game, no one told us that the boiler closet in Peck Hall, where the phone line was stored, was going to be basically renovated, ripped apart was a better word for it. So we go out to set up to do the pregame show and comes time to run this phone line. And this was a ridiculously long phone run. I mean, I'm talking this is this is 150 or 175 yards of phone line on a reel that we're running out of this boiler closet in Peck Hall. We opened the door. There was a concrete stairwell that was there the week prior that had been knocked out, jackhammered out. 
what was left of the phone line was there. Luckily, it was still in the wall and usable from a standpoint. It was still in the board, the, the patch board there on the wall. But the end with the physical, uh, the jack on it where you plug the pigtail in was gone. Okay, so we're in college. We're not really engineers, and we got to figure this out. Oh, and by the way, neither one of us have got any kind of wire strippers with us. So David, um, the being ingenuitive like he is, uh, David finds a piece of concrete that's been broken in there that you can hold in your hand, had a sharp edge on it. So like cave, like a caveman, he lays his phone line down on the outside and starts cutting wire off of a phone line with a rock. I mean, there's sparks coming off the ground where he's hitting the concrete, you know. But he strips enough of the wire off that we can take another piece of line and he splices together a, a phone line and we're able to get on the air. But I've never been around anything else quite like it. I've been plenty of places where, you know, we've had data connections that have been bad or iffy or we've had a primary line drop and we've had to go to secondaries or, or whatever. Never since that day have I ever seen anybody strip wire and splice together a phone run with nothing more than a piece of busted concrete. And to this day, I say, David Reed, anybody who's looking for somebody great in the broadcast business, you'll not find anybody else who's got that story. David can do it. And and he did it that day and, and, and really pulled it out of the fire for us. You, of course, uh, call the team where Mike Leach is the head coach. And he's known for being a little eccentric, especially with the media. What is your relationship with Coach Leach like? And do you have any fun stories that you can tell without burning any bridges uh, about working with Mike Leach? I think he's he's fantastic to talk to. Uh, incredibly engaging, as you might imagine. Um, you know, and, and our interactions are limited to uh, Thursday nights doing a radio show during the season with covid you know, we're not been able to be around as much as I'd like to be around or as much as I have been with other coaches here, uh, because that's just the world that we live in. But he's, he's incredibly honest. He's candid. Uh, what I like from the broadcasting standpoint is it's very easy to figure out what he's willing to talk about and what he doesn't want to talk about because he just puts it out there. I mean, that, that to me is, is kind of a gift in some ways. Um, but the, the show is a quick hour because again, he, he has an anecdote for just about everything. Um, when, you know, he, he knows football and listening to him explain how the air raid works or why a certain player might be picking up the concepts better than another is helpful for when we get to Saturdays. It helps us illustrate some points and, and, you know, I'm appreciative of, of that. Um, I think the, the best story he's told, and he told this one on the air, uh, since we've worked together here in, in these last few months is, uh, when he was at Texas Tech, he was asked a question. It, 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 the story starts. He was asked a question by a listener. He eats a banana on the field before the start of every game. And this lady wanted to know if he liked bananas uh, or why did he do it? Was it just something he did? And he goes, well, 
He said, I don't really like bananas, but they're a great source of potassium. And, you know, football games long, you know, you sweat a lot, you lose potassium, whatever. So I thought can't hurt. So I eat a banana. And the other thing is, you know, you got, you got something left over after you eat the banana. And if you got a referee that you don't agree with or something like that, you got a little toy, you can put it on their head. You can throw it out there. You can do whatever, have fun with them. I said, so after he answers the question, I ask, I said, are you superstitious? No, I'm not superstitious, but I've worked with, I've worked with people. I've coached with people that are superstitious. And he tells a story about being at Texas Tech and I forget who they're playing. But before this game, the doctor on the trip has B12 shots. So Coach Leach is sitting here and he says, you know, well, B12 is good for you. Maybe I'll try one of those. So he asked the doc if he could have a B12 shot. He gives him a shot. Texas Tech goes out, wins the game. Next week, they're getting ready to play. Doctor's there. An assistant comes up to him. Hey, coach, you know, you took one of these B12 shots last week and we won. Maybe I'll take another one this week. Okay, sure. So he goes in the doctor's office, slides pants down. Doctor gives him a shot. They go out. They win again. This goes on for about six weeks. And he says, going into the sixth game, I'm in the doctor's room in the locker room area, and I'm only willing to pull my pants down to about the hip to ask him if he can give me the shot in the hip because I've got 10 coaches gathered around me crammed in this little room wanting to verify that I'm taking the B12 shot because we've won the last five games when I've taken the B12 shot. So, no, I'm not superstitious, but I have coached with people who are superstitious. That's been the all-timer, I think, um, since since he's been here. That one was pretty good. Not too many dry eyes in the room after hearing him explain all that. All right. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time. Uh, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, how would they go about doing so? I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's at Hail State Voice, H-A-I-L-S-T-A-T-E-V-O-I-C-E. Everything at Mississippi State is Hail State something, so I'm the announcer, so it's Hail State Voice. Uh, feel free to reach me there. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, uh, for those who are, are listening who are just getting started, Stay the course. Took me a long time uh, to get to this point. I mean, I've been at it since I was 15. So, you know, I'm 40 now. You do the math. Uh, it, it wasn't overnight. And there were times when I thought it wasn't going to happen. Uh, there were times I was convinced it wasn't going to happen. And eventually it did. So just keep at it. Keep plugging. Uh, keep doing it the right way. Keep meeting people. Uh, building the network. Keep getting reps. It'll work for you, too. If I can do it, anybody can. All right, once again, we are visiting with Neil Price. He is the voice of Mississippi State football and men's basketball. And, Neil, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Logan. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. Remember, Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of this show this week, Neil Price, and just let them know that you appreciate them taking time to share their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to save the damn score just a little bit more.